As a new parent, I love being a father of our son, Caleb. It's such a joy to see our little guy grow and change. And one thing I've realized in the short time I've been a parent is that there's some things we have to teach Caleb, and there's some things we don't have to teach him. He just kind of picks up on. For instance, we taught him how to give a high five. We're like, Caleb, give us a high five, and he'll give you a high five. Or if I say, Caleb, how big are you? Caleb is so big, he'll, he'll raise his hands like this and smile because he thinks he's the biggest guy in the room. It's awesome because we taught him how to do that. But there is one thing we didn't have to teach him. We didn't have to teach him how to be disobedient. Isn't that amazing? I didn't have to sit down with him and say, Caleb, this is how you rebel against me and your mother. Um, watch me closely. I mean, it's like he picked, on the, picked up on that naturally. In fact, I think he knows the word no pretty well. In our living room, we have this plant. It's a, a real plant. And for some reason, Caleb is just attracted to that like a, like a moth on a flame, you know. He just loves that thing. But he knows that he's not supposed to go there. So when we see him taking off towards it, we'll say, Caleb, no. And he'll stop. And then he'll look at you like. <laughs> and then he'll go and touch the plant anyway. Because he knows that he's not supposed to do it. But we didn't have to teach him how to rebel against us and go towards that plant. When Caleb disobeys, my wife and I have a choice in how we're going to respond. We could ignore it. We could say no. We could yell a lot. <laughs> we could lose our temper. We could pick our battles. But either way, we're going to respond to our child's disobedience in some way, aren't we? If you're a parent, you know that when your child disobeys, you have a choice on how you're going to respond. Well, in the story of Jonah today, we see a man, not a child, disobey. And he's not just disobeying anybody, but he's disobeying the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords of the entire universe. He's disobeying God. And we see how God responds. And his response, God's response, is very surprising. Now, the book of Luke, we've been going through the book of Luke the past few weeks. The book of Luke takes place about 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked this earth. But the book of Jonah takes place about 2,700 years ago, about 700 years prior to Jesus. We're in the Old Testament. There is a literal kingdom of Israel that is broken into. There's a northern kingdom. There's a southern kingdom. And in our story, God gives the prophet Jonah, called by God, a unique message and a unique mission. So we're going to go through Jonah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. And as we do that, I'm going to talk about what disobedience is. And I'm also going to talk about three ways on how God relates to our disobedience. So first, what disobedience is, and three ways that God relates to our disobedience. And it's a little surprising. So please follow along as I read in verse 1. You can find this in your bulletin too. It says in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, let me pause right there. That may seem very insignificant, that first verse, but it's extremely significant because this verse is just like a lot of other books in the Old Testament, prophetic books start. So like when the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, it says pretty much the same thing. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah or when the word of the Lord comes to Elijah in the Old Testament, a very significant prophet, it says the same thing. In fact, Jonah was a very good prophet. If you know your Bible, you think of Jonah, you start thinking of a fish, you think of a bad prophet, but he's a really good prophet at this point. In 2 Kings 14, verse 25, 2 Kings 14, 25, it mentions this guy named Jonah. And this is what it says about him. 
It talks about King Jeroboam. He says, King Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So Jonah was a well-known prophet. And not only that, he had the privilege of speaking for God. Not only that, he spoke a message that he actually saw come to pass. He prophesied that Israel would expand their borders. And guess what? It happened. I mean, people liked Jonah because he prophesied good things about them. When the people thought about Jonah, they thought, this is a great prophet. I mean, he's like number one in the ranking of prophets because he loves us. He prophesies good things. And, he actually, and those things actually come to pass. So as we're reading verse 1, we're thinking about all this stuff in Jonah's past, how great he is, how awesome he is, that he's a success. And then we get to verse 2. This is what God says to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. So Jonah was called by God to go to a city over 500 miles away. In fact, I have it on screen, a map, to show you uh, where this is at. If I can get it to work, sometimes it does and doesn't. There we go. Did you do that, Trent? Thank you, man. I may have to rely on you this morning. <laughs> Here's a map. In the middle is the Mediterranean Sea in the Middle East. Um, there's a city called Joppa. Jonah's not there yet, but right now Jonah's just north of Joppa in Israel. And he's called to go to that city to the right called Nineveh. That's over 500 miles away. Now, this is unusual. Because back then, prophets were called to prophesy against foreign nations, but most of them did it within the safety of their country. Yet Jonah's called by God to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the most dangerous and the most wicked place you could possibly be on earth. I mean, you have to understand how wicked Assyria was. Here's how, uh, this is a quote from a king named Ashurnasirpul II, don't ask me to say that again, he reigned about 100 years before Jonah. He was an Assyrian king in Nineveh. This is what this Ashurnasirpul II said after his battle. He said, I caused great slaughter. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. So to impale somebody is to drive spears through people. And not only that, but he would set them up as like a monument to his greatness with the bodies on these stakes in front of his city, just to show how tough this guy was. He goes on to say, many of the captives of war I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to the wrist. From others I cut off their noses and their ears and their fingers. I gouged out the eyes of many soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. And then he even goes on to describe how he would skin people, sometimes alive, as part of their military campaign. And then they would take the skins and they would hang them up on the walls of the city, outside the city, so that when people came in, they would see these human skins and they'd think, wow, this is one tough dude. So you have to understand when Jonah gets the message to go to Nineveh, he's probably thinking of all these things. Assyria, a wicked nation, I mean, people that, the most dominant empire at that time that could rip his guts out, basically. <laughs> So what's Jonah going to do in verse 3? What would you do if God called you to go to a foreign place like that and have the chance of getting destroyed? Well, let's see. Verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord 
He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish. That's the third time Tarshish is mentioned. Away from the presence of the Lord. So we get the idea that Jonah doesn't like God's command, does he? In fact, I don't think he's just afraid. He might have been afraid. I would have been afraid. But he's trying to disobey and rebel against God. He is fleeing from what? The presence of the Lord. If you look up on the map, you see where Joppa is. Where's Tarshish? All the way over there. Where's Nineveh? The other side. So he goes the exact opposite direction. Many people think Tarshish is on the western coast of Spain. So this guy is trying to get out of there as far away as he can. In fact, I think he's trying to leave Israel because he does not want to be reminded about God. He does not want to be convicted by being around his people or the temple or his mission. So he's going the exact opposite way. It makes you wonder what his conversation was with the captain of that ship when he paid the fare. I think they asked him questions like, "Uh, so what's your business? What are you doing? What do you think he said? I mean, obviously he had to produce a lot of money to go that far. He is trying to flee the presence of the Lord and disobey God. And this brings me to my first point. What is disobedience? Or really, what is sin? Jonah gives us a picture of what sin is. Disobedience or sin is actually running from the Lord. Just like Jonah. Or another way of saying it, go ahead and go to the next part, is going our way rather than the Lord's way. Instead of going to Nineveh, going to Tarshish. It's saying we know what's best more than God knows what's best. Now let's pause for a moment and think about Jonah. Because it's easy to read stories in the Bible and kind of diss Jonah and be like, come on, man, obey God. It's that simple, right? Just go. But is it ever that simple in your own life to obey God, is it? When God calls you to do something, whether from his word, or maybe you know God is working on your heart and he's calling you to change and do something, do you just do it right away? <laughs> or do you kind of think about it and chew it over and hem and haw and kind of scoot your feet along and think, well, maybe God, if the right opportunity comes up, I'll do it. Or even think about telling people about God or telling people about Jesus. I mean, how many of you feel like the Lord is calling you to tell your neighbors or your friends or coworkers about Jesus or someone you know? How often do you actually do that when the Lord calls you to do that? I mean, I'm guessing, this is just a guess. I'm guessing if you do that, the people that God has called you to are not going to skin you alive like the Assyrians, are they? But we probably don't do that. (laughs) You see, the key to the book of Jonah is identifying with Jonah. Here's how a guy named Tolian says it. If we're honest, we can start already to identify with Jonah. His runaway posture is our posture. Every time we sin, whether in thought, word, or deed, whether it's big or small, whether it's something we do or fail to do, every time we sin, we're telling God that my way of navigating this particular situation is better than yours. My wisdom and skill are better than yours, God, so I'm going to do what I want to do. And this, this is really the profound thing about sin. Whenever we disobey God, are you listening? Are you with me? How many are with me here this morning? Awesome. More than, all right. <laughs> Whenever we disobey God, this is the thing, and you can put it up on screen, Trent. When we disobey, we act as if we're really God. When we disobey, we set ourselves up to be God rather than God. Because by making that choice, by doing that thing, we're telling God, we know better than you. 
You may tell us to go one way, but my way's better. What we're really doing is setting ourselves up to be what the Bible calls an idol. We're worshiping ourselves. So where in your life this morning are you living your way rather than God's way? And I'm guessing that all of us here, no matter how dedicated of a Christian you are or not, can find some area in our life this morning that we're trying to live our way or God's way. If you're not sure, ask somebody who knows you pretty well. If you're married, ask your spouse. That'll make for some good lunchtime conversation today. (laughs) Honey, where am I rebelling against God today? And usually your spouse will know. Let's go on to verse 4. What's the Lord going to do? What's he going to do to respond to Jonah's disobedience? Is he going to find another prophet? Is he going to just let it go? Well, here's what Jonah, here's what the Lord does in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. I love that word hurl. That shows up a lot. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners or the other sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So how does the Lord respond to Jonah's disobedience? Well, we see the first way, and you can see it on screen. One way the Lord responds to Jonah's disobedience, and I believe our disobedience, is that he intervenes in our lives. God relates to our disobedience by intervening in our life. He gets involved in our lives despite our disobedience. We see this right away in verse 4. The Lord hurls a great wind upon the sea, It's so great that these sailors are afraid. I mean, these sailors are probably, I picture them in my mind as these big, tough dudes with scars and huge tattoos on their arms and face, probably scary looking guys. But these guys are afraid. They're used to sailing on the open sea. So you knew this storm had to be one huge storm to scare these guys. If you look at verse five, it says the sailors did everything they knew how to do. They even threw their cargo into the sea. Now, why is that a big deal? Because their cargo, that's their money. They're just throwing their money away. I mean, when you're in the midst of a storm that great, do you care how much money you're going to make? No, you care for your life. So they're doing exactly what they should be doing, lightening the load so that their ship will not break apart. And I want to bring this point out too, because in our story, we see a dramatic picture of what sin does. You see, sin has a way of affecting not only you, but it has a way of affecting the people around you, doesn't it? I mean, think of Jonah. His sin was very personal against God, yet his decision to rebel against God gets these sailors and this foreign captain, these pagan sailors involved in God's wrath. Not because it was their fault, it was Jonah's fault. Sin has a way in your life of not just being private, but affecting the community. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're struggling with some secret sin, some private sin you want no one else to know about. And if, if people knew about it, you'd be ashamed. Let's say you're addicted to the sin of pornography, and you've kept it a secret, and you think this won't affect everyone. It's just you and your computer, you and your magazine, whatever. But I have news for you. You are wrong. (laughs) There is no such thing as a private sin. If you're married and you struggle with pornography, it's going to affect your relationship with your spouse because he or she will not be able to live up to the images you've created in your little fantasy world. Or if you're not married and you're dabbling in pornography, it's going to affect your future spouse and maybe even your future children. It will affect your relationship with people at church because if you're coming here this morning struggling with some secret sin that you want no one else to know about, I'm guessing the first thing on your mind is not, gee, how can I serve people today? No one said you're probably embarrassed. 
and ashamed and just struggling to get by. You're not coming thinking, how can I serve someone or praise for someone in the Crosspoint community? How can I listen to somebody today? Or if you're struggling with sin this morning, I guarantee you're not going to be thinking about, how can I tell people about Jesus throughout the week? I mean, your sin, even if you think it's private, it affects everyone around you. And it can have tremendous consequences, not just for you, but for everyone, just like Jonah was seeing with these guys. What is Jonah doing during the midst of all this storm? Well, let's look at verse 5. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. (laughs) Now, why is he sleeping? I'd have a hard time sleeping through a storm like that. How in the world is he sleeping? Well, a lot of people think he's just exhausted from fleeing God, that the only way he can truly flee God is if he falls asleep and doesn't even think about what he's just done. Who knows? But I think the narrator is showing us something amazing about sin or something bad about sin, really. Look at that word down. Jonah went down into the inner part of the ship. He laid down. I mean, Jonah keeps going down in his sin. Sin has this way of spiraling us downward and downward. That's what the narrator is showing us. But even though sin leads down, God has a way of intervening and trying to wake us up despite our sin. I use that word intervene intentionally because I thought about using the word punish. God punishes sin in our lives, which is true. You could say that the storm God sends is is God's punishment against Jonah, that out of his wrath against sin, he is sending that storm, and you'd you'd be right. Because one one of the worst things, I think, that God can do in your life is if he allows you to continue in your sin. If you're obsessed with sin, some addiction, whatever, and he just lets you go, that's the worst thing that could happen because you're going to keep spiraling downward and downward. But if God intervenes and punishes you, what does that do to you? It wakes you up and draws your attention. It's painful, but it helps you change course and go a different way. Worst of all, if if you choose to continue to live your life in sin and God doesn't intervene, you're on a straight path to God's storm and his wrath that someday if you die, you're going to spend eternity away from God out of your own choosing. If you continually defy God, you're going to face the storm of his wrath. But I like this word intervene better. How many, how many of you have heard of an intervention in somebody's life? If you schedule an intervention for someone, you might invite them over for like a party. They may think they're coming over for one reason, and then when the right moment, you know, you change the mood of the party and everybody confronts this individual. Somebody, some of you are smiling like this may have happened to you. So maybe you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but an intervention is where a group of people or someone confronts somebody, even though it's painful, trying to get them to change. And that person may not like it. They may get mad, but if they actually listen to the intervention, they'll change, and it's for their good. Even though it's painful, it's for their good. Well, I believe God is intervening in Jonah's life. He's scheduling an intervention, and he's doing it by sending a storm, a huge storm, to wake him up. God, out of his grace and out of his mercy, is punishing Jonah to wake him up. (laughs) The storm is really God's gift to him. Sometimes we think if we can just live however we want and just continue to do the things we want to do, that's true freedom. I mean, a lot of our culture thinks that. But it's not. This guy Tolian, he's a biblical scholar, says, when you live your life believing everything depends on you, 
like your finances, your career, your choices, your family, your relationships, then you're really enslaved to yourself. It's not freedom. You're enslaved to your strengths and your weaknesses. You're trying to be your own savior. But freedom comes when we trust in God's abilities and wisdom instead of our own. God is graciously sending this storm to wake Jonah up out of his so-called freedom that he's trying to live by. And God can do it in so many ways in your life too. God will sometimes, I believe, send a storm in your life to wake you up out of your so-called freedom and you going your way rather than God's way. Now hear me out for a second. I can't say for sure that if you're going through a difficult time this morning that that's God's punishment towards you, that that's God's intervention, because I'm not God, I can't say that. But I can say that it's at least worth asking the question. If you're going through a difficult time this morning, could this be God's way of waking you up out of your slumber? Could this be God's way of causing you to re-examine your life and follow God? It's worth asking the question. Maybe some of you this morning are struggling with financial storms or relational storms, or maybe you lost your job and that's a storm, or maybe you have a health storm where you just got diagnosed with some disease or you've been fighting this disease or someone you know is. Maybe you have a stress storm. Maybe life is just so stressful. Could it be that God may be waking you up and out of his grace and mercy, he's allowing this to happen and scheduling an intervention so that you'll give your life more to him? Could it be? You see, sometimes God allows these storms out of his mercy and grace just to get your attention. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need it to be right in my face to get my attention because I'm stubborn and I'm stupid. I'm both. (laughs) And I need God to wake me up. You see, God's goal for you is not to be just comfortable and happy. God's goal for you is not to live stress-free, although so many of us try to live as if we can create this world in our lives where we're stress-free and everything's right in the place. That's not God's goal for you. He wants you to live dependent on him. And sometimes he'll do whatever it takes to get you to that place. So how are you responding to the storms in your life right now? Maybe you brought them on yourself, like Jonah, because of some sin, and you're now facing its consequences. Or maybe you're like the sailors in this boat. Somebody else brought the storm in their life, and it's not their fault, but they still have to respond to it. You see, when storms come your way, you have two options. You can get better towards God, or you can get bitter towards God. It's one or the other. You can grow closer, or you can drift away. Let's go on to verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, that's Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? That's a nice way of saying, what are you doing? (laughs) Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God though it's a lowercase g, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now put yourself in Jonah's shoes. He's sleeping. He's groggy. Somebody comes and just wakes him up and shakes him and yells at him. I mean, if you look at the way it's phrased, he says, arise, call out to your God. I mean, back in verse 2, it says something similar. Arise and go to Nineveh and call out against it. As Jonah's waking up, maybe he thinks God is literally speaking to him like, oh, God has given me that command again. (laughs) And to make things even more ironic, irony means something opposite happens that we don't expect. This pagan foreign captain is more concerned with people perishing than Jonah is, who's an insider with God. 
I mean, this captain cares more about his crew and Jonah than Jonah cares about them or the Ninevites. He doesn't care. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and guess what? The lot fell on Jonah. Now, casting lots is like a spiritual way of rolling dice that a lot of different religions did. did. They'd throw the dice to figure out what is God's will or what does God want them to do. Even in the Old Testament, you see the Israelites doing this. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. We don't do that today because Jesus has come and the Holy Spirit has come and we rely on Him. But, but back then, God could even speak through this. The sailors probably didn't have the best intention. They didn't follow God, but God used it to pinpoint Jonah. Verse 8, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I mean, how do you think they said that to him? Tell us, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What people are you? Tell us now before we die. (laughs) They want to know. Verse 9, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, does Jonah really fear the Lord right now in his life? How many say yes? How many say no? It's not rock and science. No, it doesn't. It is interesting, though, he brings out he's a Hebrew. He talks about his nationality or ethnicity. And and just kind of tuck that away in the back of your mind, because we're going to bring that out again when we get to chapter 4 in a few weeks. But he does surprisingly confess his allegiance to the Lord. We don't know if Jonah's being sincere or true, but we do know that Jonah has at least good theology. <laughs> and this is, a, this is a key, kind of a key side thing to bring out too. Having the right theology does not always equal living out your theology. <laughs> Having the right information does not necessarily lead to transformation in your life. <laughs> Jonah had all the right information, He had even the right theology, but I think he's being backed into a corner and finally admitting, okay, God, you're the Lord of the heaven and the sea, the dry land and the sea. I get it. Go on to verse 10. Then the men, that's the sailors, were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he had told them. (laughs) He told them that. (laughs) So these sailors are getting more afraid. In verse 5, they were afraid. And now they're really afraid when they see the connection to Jonah and the storm. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. That's a great word. That's a way of saying it grew more and more violent. Verse 12, He said to them, Pick me up and hurl. We saw that word earlier. Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest or storm has come upon you. Now let's think for a moment. Is Jonah being a hero now, you think? Is he saying, I will take the fall for you guys? What do you think? Well, a lot of scholars disagree that Jonah's starting to change. It might be a hero. Some think he's just committing suicide. Well, I don't think he's being a hero. I think he's finally starting to get it that he can't outrun God. So he'd rather just die. So he can truly be away from the presence of the Lord. Because Jonah, he had some other options than just being thrown into the sea. He could have said to the captain, could you turn the ship around and we'll see what happens, you know? Or what if I call out to God and pray to him and repent? 
Maybe that'll work first. But instead, his first suggestion is what? Throw me into the sea. Maybe then I'll get away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. I mean, these men are, have much better character than Jonah. They don't just take a suggestion right away, but they, they buckle down and they try to row back to sea, back to shore, because they care about Jonah's life. I mean, does Jonah care about them as much as he cares about them? I say that right? No. <laughs> Verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. I mean, the sailors are so compassionate, they even offer a prayer to Jonah's God. I mean, they're starting to get it that Jonah's God is actually God. They're actually starting to obey God where Jonah is disobeying God. By the way, the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is referred to three times in this verse. That's the most sacred, holy name for God, Yahweh. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. There's that word again. And the sea did what? It ceased from its raging. <laughs> How creepy would that have been? They throw this guy overboard and <whistles> silent. <laughs> Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So there's a huge contrast between Jonah and these pagan sailors. I mean, this is where Jonah is a lot like the book of Luke that we've been going through. The book of Luke shows that the outcasts, the sinners, the prostitutes, the rebels, they are the ones actually coming into a right relationship with God because they recognize how messed up they are and how much they need God. Where the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the insiders, they are so far away from God. Well, the same is true here. The pagan sailors, the wicked sailors, the rebels, they are much closer to God than Jonah who's an insider, who should have known better. Jonah's a lot like Luke. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This leads to my second way that God relates to our disobedience. We said the first way is God intervenes in our lives. The second way is that God can deliver us out of our disobedience. God can deliver us out of our disobedience. Notice I said the word can. He doesn't have to, but he can. And he does sometimes. How did God deliver Jonah in this circumstance? What did he send in verse 17? A big fish. I mean, Jonah was thrown overboard. He was probably expecting to drown. He thought, this is it. But instead, a big fish comes and swallows him. I mean, can you imagine being Jonah and think like, come on, God, I can't even flee you. I mean, you swallowed me. <laughs> and he would spend the next three days and three nights thinking about his situation in the belly of a fish. Well, sometimes God will send something to deliver us too, even though we don't deserve it. I know a lot of your stories here in our church. Some of you have been addicted to drugs or addicted to all sorts of things. Whatever sin you're addicted to, that's, what, that's an addiction. And yet, despite your disobedience, God woke you up through a storm even though you didn't deserve it, you responded, and he delivered you. And you'd be the first one to say today that you don't deserve it. God delivered you out of that circumstance, and you don't deserve it. It was his grace. But even more so, all of us, if we're a Christian here this morning, 
know what it's like to be delivered because of the gospel. That word gospel means good news. The good news of the Bible is that we are more wicked than we ever imagined, that we are deserving of God's wrath and his storm. God deserves to let us die and drown in the storm because of our sin. We deserve God's storm, but, but instead God sends not a fish to swallow us up. But what does he send or who? He sends his son Jesus to deliver us who lived perfectly in our behalf and who died as the substitute for our sin and rose again. So the gospel is the good news that we are more wicked than we ever thought possible, yet we are more loved than we ever imagined. All because of Jesus. God could have easily left you and me to drown in our sin, but he staged an intervention in Jesus who brought a much better storm than this storm. For some of you here this morning, I believe God may be confronting you God may be confronting you to believe in Jesus. He sent storms in your life to, to wake you up. And my encouragement to you this morning, my plea is to do it before it's too late. I mean, Jonah could have easily died. He could have drowned and been away from God. Jonah got a second chance, and as we'll see, he gets many chances to follow God. But there are plenty of instances in the Bible where God does not give people a second chance. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he'll give people thirds and fourths and fifths and a thousand chances to respond to him. And sometimes he gives one or two. I think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Right after the church started, these two people lied before God. And what does God do to him? Strikes him down, dead, in front of everybody. I don't know how much time you have left to give your life to Jesus. God could take you in an instant if he wanted to. He doesn't have to allow you to keep living. But my point is, respond today and turn to him before it's too late, or you will get swallowed in God's wrath. Let's go on to way number three. How else does God relate to our disobedience? Well, God can even use our disobedience for his glory. Hmm. God can use our disobedience for his glory, or you could say for his purposes. We saw Jonah go the exact opposite way of what he should do. And a lot of you can relate. Through his disobedience, Jonah affected an entire crew. Yet by the end of the story, these sailors, they started out as pagan sailors who worshipped all sorts of gods. By the end of the story, we see these sailors probably coming to know God. Look at verse 16. It says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And not only that, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord And they made vows. They made a commitment to the Lord after all this. I mean, think about this. Isn't it amazing that God used Jonah's act of disobedience to show his power and glory to these pagan sailors so that by the end of the story, they're worshiping God? Isn't that incredible? Imagine what God could do through Jonah's obedience and not just his disobedience. Some of us here this morning know what it's like to rebel against the Lord. For some of us here this morning, I've done it for years. And then only later turn to the Lord, or maybe some of us are still doing it. Some of us know that because of our disobedience, we serve as an example of what not to do for other people. Well, one thing I've noticed is that God never wastes your past. As I talk with people, no matter what you've been through, you could have done the worst sin in the world that you want to tell no one, but God doesn't waste your past. He didn't want you to live that life, but he has a way of using your past and your disobedience for his glory. A lot of you have stories to tell of people what not to do, so you've told them that. Don't be like I was. I paid my dumb tax back then. (laughs) Don't do that. 
God can use you despite your disobedience for his glory, even to bring people to know him. But there's even a greater way that God used Jonah's disobedience. Jonah shows up in the book of Matthew, not the guy himself, but a reference to Jonah shows up. In Matthew 12, verse 38, in the New Testament, there's a story where these scribes and Pharisees encounter Jesus, and they say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. In other words, they say, Teacher, prove to us that you are the Son of God. Prove to us that you are awesome. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, why would Jesus say that? That's really kind of strange because of all the prophets Jesus singles out in the Old Testament, he picks Jonah, a rebellious prophet who disobeyed God. He said, look at Jonah. That's how you know I am the son of God. Why would he say that? And then Jesus goes on to say, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man, that's Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see what Jesus is doing? Jesus used the story of Jonah to point to himself. He said, just as Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights, so Jesus would be in the grave how many days? Three days. Interesting, huh? Jesus said, look at Jonah. Jonah was the sign pointing to me. Just like God sent Jonah to obey him on a mission, God sent Jesus to obey him on a mission. And just like, and unlike Jonah where he disobeyed, Jesus obeyed perfectly. And came more than 500 miles, came to our earth among wicked, rebellious human beings, and he even died for us, even though we didn't deserve it. You see, God cast Jesus into the storm of his wrath. Jesus was hurled overboard into the sea of God's wrath, and the storm of God's wrath quieted when Jesus died on the cross. And I believe the storm of God's wrath will quiet against you when you give your life to Jesus here this morning and ask him to pay for your sin because he paid it all on the cross. God's storm will quiet down and calm down because Jesus was thrown into the sea for you. You see, God used Jonah's disobedience to point to someone who was perfectly obedient, someone much greater than Jonah, somebody who would suffer a similar fate to Jonah. But Jesus was perfect and suffered a similar fate. Jonah deserved his fate. Jesus didn't. So I believe the main point of Jonah after all this, and you can put it up on screen, Trent, on the next slide. What is the main point of all this? Our disobedience cannot stop God. It can't. God wasn't surprised by Jonah's disobedience, and he used it to bring sailors to himself, and he used it ultimately to point to Jesus. Isn't that crazy? I believe that no matter what you're going through this morning, God can use you despite your disobedience. He can use you and work through you if you turn to him, or he can work in spite of you and go around you and let you serve as an example of what not to do, all for his glory. Which way is it going to be in your life? Which way is it going to be from this day going forward? Would you pray with me? And while we're praying, the music team, you can come forward. Let's just spend some time reflecting where are you like Jonah this morning? Where are you running away from the Lord? Has God been trying to wake you up to follow him? And are you responding to his wake-up calls? There's no guarantee that you'll get another wake-up call. It's maybe the last one.
And finally, I want you to think about Jesus here this morning, who was perfect unlike Jonah and faced God's wrath, even though he didn't deserve it. Jonah deserved it. Jesus didn't. He was willing to suffer God's storm and God's wrath, so you wouldn't have to. Father, I pray that you would wake us up this morning. If we're asleep like Jonah in the bottom of the ship, trying to flee from you and outrun you, remind us that we cannot outrun you. Remind us of how great and glorious you are. Keep sending wake-up calls our way out of your grace and mercy to wake us up and help us to respond. Lord, I pray most of all that we'd see your son Jesus high and lifted up, that we'd be so grateful for what he did on our behalf as someone that Jonah pointed to. Father, we don't take you or your son for granted. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.